Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the John Papaloni Show. Today, we have Arye Scheinbein. Arye, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Pleasure to be here. Absolute pleasure. Let's uh, get started with the podcast with my famous start, which is a uh, little bio information of who you are, what you do, and how you got there. All right, sure. Uh, so I went, I guess, like old school traditional route of I went to college um, and got a degree in finance. And from there, I went to uh, what we call investment banking. I worked for a firm called JP Morgan. And um, after that, kind of started staying in the investment space. So um, I worked at a small venture capital private equity firm where we invested in you know startup businesses. Um, and then I went back to some of the bigger banks and I did something called equity research where we write reports on stocks, right? So you see a stock in the market, there's analysts who write reports. So I would write some of those reports. And then ultimately over time, um, I moved to, uh, working at different investment funds. So where we managed, uh, billions of dollars for institutions and we invested it in mainly actually private companies. So either private equity um, or private credit, meaning instead of uh, the, you know, the big companies that you see in the news getting loans from a bank, we uh, underwrote loans to smaller companies that were, you know, doing, let's say, 10 to $50 million of EBITDA type of thing. And I basically spent, you know, I don't know, better part of uh, two decades doing that. And now I work at a, a, consult, a global consulting firm where large investment managers hire me to actually value businesses and value their investments, whether private companies, um, their equity or their debt. Along the way, I would say that, you know, I, I didn't realize when, when I was when I was younger, entrepreneurship and entrepreneurial things, it wasn't like a thing. Like you, you went to school and you were like, okay, I'm going to get a job. It wasn't like, Hey, I'm going to be my own boss. You didn't have all the, the online tools that you have today. And, um, I didn't realize how entrepreneurial I really was, but even after my first job, I immediately started doing things online. I started selling physical products online and I got into e-commerce. So while maintaining my job, I kind of built up a bunch of different things in e-commerce and then got into, because when you're running a business, you realize, Oh, I have a customer. What do I need to do with this customer? I need their email addresses. And so I learned marketing. Um, basically, I got a self PhD in in, uh, in marketing for growing the businesses. And that led to getting into more e-commerce stuff and meeting more and more entrepreneurs. And what I found when I met a lot of entrepreneurs was that most of them because they didn't have what I would call like a corporate, a lot of them have corporate backgrounds, but a lot of them don't. They just like, you know, hey, this is what I wanna do. I wanna work for myself and whatever it is. Um, they really had no experience in thinking about, like they're great at their business, but they weren't really good at knowing what to do with their money or at least how to make their money grow. Because in a corporate job, not to say you're good at it, per se, but they, they give you certain things and then some companies educate you and then you have water cooler talk, meaning like you sit around with some of your coworkers and you're like, oh, what are you doing with your 401k or whatever? And not to say that's the be all and end all, but it, it kind of gives you certain, you know, grounded ideas. Um, so I found, I probably started investing personally in real estate in 2004, 2005. And so what happened was, is as I met all these entrepreneurs and they were like, oh, what do I do with my money? Or like, how do I just started naturally teaching them and like giving out free education because I was like, oh, you know, like I, it came naturally and I loved it and I just enjoyed it. And ultimately over time, um, it's another thing that I do. Like I have, you know, an advisory firm 
that like we I show people real estate deals, but I also I'm always investing as a personal investor first. Like I always think about things from my personal standpoint. And um, yeah, that that's the long long and short of it. That's fascinating, actually, especially the uh, real estate portion. I'm sure as you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so. <laughs> But wow, you know what I mean? Like, it's incredible. Like, I, I'm just blown away. Like, you know, like, I'm going to touch upon something here. Something's on my mind. I want to bring it up. Sure. Right. Because you were uh, working with JP and Morgan. You were, I'm sure, dealing with people's 401ks and stuff. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, like, like I'm in Canada. And in Canada, we have something similar, which is like regular mutual funds or, or RSPs. I mean, the same concept. Yeah. Uh, just different wording, depending on what side of the border you're on. But um, now here's my perspective on it. And then you tell me your perspective. Sure. My perspective on it has been that I'm technically a non-believer in them. I, I just think they're risky, right? I think it's like going to the casino or going to the stock market. Uh, again, if it's better than leaving it in a bank account, I'm not, you know, so just to be clear on that one. Uh, but at the same time, again, I'm pro real estate first because my theory is that real estate can't go to zero. And even if real estate goes to zero, that uh, you just hold on to it and keep collecting rent and then it goes back up where uh, a stock or a fund goes to zero and you pretty much got jack. And that's my perspective on it. Now, again, the majority of them don't go to zero and which is why they use the word diversify because you're not investing in one company. But I just personally found that stability is stronger in real estate, which is why I like it. Now, where I do promote it, and here we have our what we call our RSPs and we're allowed to, now they increase the limit. You can use 35K of it to be able to use it as your down payment for a first time home buyer. So I like that option of it. So my normal advice to people is invest in that and invest into it till about 35K and then stop and then use that money towards real estate. And at that point in time, now again, there's at some point in time, there's only so much you can do with real estate. You're going to cap out. And that's when I tell when my advice would be, you know, put it back into a fund because at that point in time, you can't invest it into real estate anyways, because you just don't have enough and you're tapped out. That's my perspective. What's yours? Okay. So, um, I hear, um, I don't disagree with what you're saying fundamentally. I think, um, like anything in this personal finance space, number one, it's personal. So I'll give you my personal view, but I tell everyone listening that it's personal to them. And the reason for that is everyone has different um, risk tolerances and everyone has different feelings about things. And as much as like, I'm not a, like a woo woo type of person, like I'm, I'm very much an analytical hard number type of person. Um, I think that people have to be okay. They, they have to get comfortable with whatever they're going to do. So that's opening item number one. Number two is that I think each vehicle has somewhat of a place in the world, but they, they serve different things, right? So it depends on the person listening. First of all, are they an entrepreneur? Or are they in a corporate job or a corporate job and they want to get to their entrepreneurial you know, journey or whatever it is, or they're doing some, some simultaneously? Like, you know, I talked about how I've done both of those. So if you're in a corporate job, whether you're in the US, I don't know all the Canadian rules, but I know the RSPs and, and stuff like that. But so let's say um, I'm an employee in the United States and my employer offers me a 401k. So there are two 401ks, right? There's a, or, or an IRA. There's something called a Roth and something called a regular, where one is you pay, pay tax on the way in and one you, is you pay tax on the, pay tax on the way out, meaning on a traditional IRA. Yeah, go ahead. Not to interrupt you, but the one where you pay the tax on the way out, that's our equivalent to the uh, RSPs. Right. And the 401ks will be the normal mutual fund. So I, again, we have the same thing, just yeah. different terms. Yeah, no problem. So, so traditional IRAs and 401ks, 
you basically pre-tax it, meaning like it comes out of your paycheck. Uh, paycheck before you pay taxes on and a Roth because now they have Roth 401ks also is you pay tax on the way in um, and then you never pay taxes on the gains. So irrespective of the vehicle, because these are tax laws that will change over time, whatever it is, the, the fundamental idea, right, is that they're trying to get you to save things. And if, if you really like, I'm going to bore people here for a second, so bear with me. Um, if you If you go back in history, like these are the things that created the mutual fund industry because it used to be, right? Like if you go back in your parents or grandparents' time, what happened was is we had, um, we had corporations create pension plans for people, right? And they would, in theory, invest the money for you. And then when you retired, they would pay you some portion of your salary until you died. And I think companies realize like, hey, this is unsustainable. We're not going to be able to do this because then we need an investment team and like this, this whole thing doesn't make sense. And they were faced, a lot of these companies with what we would call like unfunded liabilities, meaning they were going to have liabilities of people's income that they were going to have to pay for for the next, you know, 100 years or 20 years or whatever it is. And it was, let's say, billions of dollars and they only had half of that. And they're like, oh, we'll never fill the gap. Let's create mutual funds and make people invest on their own, right? So some companies have this thing called a match, right? Where they'll say, okay, for every, you know, the first $6,000 you put in, we'll give you $3,000 or something like that. So if someone comes to me, like, again, so let me preface this. Uh, John and I are not tax advisors. We're probably not licensed certified people. We are just two dudes on the internet talking and having a conversation, expressing our views. But if someone's at a company and they their company gives them some sort of match, i.e. that they say, here, if you invest $6,000 into your 401k, we will give you $3,000 into your 401k as well. And it's it would be called vested, meaning it, you take ownership of it right away. To me, that's a 50% return on your money that I would say never turn down. If your company doesn't have a match, now there's different things. Meaning like, why are you investing in this versus, so to speak, real estate? So one of the challenges with real estate is that access to real estate is a little bit more challenging. And it usually takes a little bit more money, right? Like you could put $100 into the S&P 500 index, whereas in you know if you want to buy a single family home or you want to invest in a syndicated you know large deal you're probably going to need more than a hundred dollars so you know in today's world though there are platforms out there that are trying to kind of like commercialize and give you access to things you know, like arrived homes or even realty mogul or yield street all these things but at the end of the day um i hear the point i, I don't disagree with the point that real estate generally doesn't go to zero i i caveat that there are t cases that you can, your value can go to zero. The real estate may not, but if there is debt on the property that is more valuable than the, the value of the property, then your equity, meaning your, your amount that you invested in it, it may go to zero. Now, granted, if you don't sell, right, like then you don't, in theory, have that problem. I will tell you, though, like depending on the situation, you could be forced to, to sell. If the cash flow isn't strong enough, if you don't have the money to kind of pay that expense. And in 2008, obviously people went through that where they just didn't have enough to cover that. So as a whole, yeah, real estate value doesn't generally go to zero. So I definitely think it's a better um, asset from the underlying value standpoint. And yes, stocks can go to zero. If the underlying company goes bankrupt, you're going to get wiped out because they probably have debt as well on the company and they have lots of shareholders. Um, I think from the, the challenge most people have as individuals is finding real estate, learning real estate, and then also if they're not going to be 
active in it, right? They want to be passive in it, finding someone they know, like, and trust who can explain what they're investing in and that they trust to actually manage it. But outside of that, I think, yeah, all, all the points that you made are very valid. And it's much more of a, you know, tax vehicle that ultimately you really, it should be part of a bigger plan and real estate should be part of that plan as well. Um, because real estate ultimately can, can, basically generate cash flow to forget the appreciation like you can live off the cash flow right like you can cover all your expenses off the cash flow so there's there's value in some of the things but for the most part i would agree that like you know the funds have very limited use and if someone's an entrepreneur and doesn't have a 401k from their company and they're like hey what should i do i would definitely not run to set up like a 401k or an ira except like i'd probably do it for my kids i would do a roth for my kids um, because that money, if, if your children are under 18 or even if they are 18, like you think about how many years of compounded free tax, you know, growth you can get in the United States, that would be amazing because you, at, you know, again, in the United States, if, an, if a child or anyone has income of twelve and a half thousand dollars or less, there's no taxes on it. So you can, re you report it, you put it into a 401, uh, a, um, a Roth IRA for them. It'll grow compounded for decades. Time is really your friend there. And even if you generate, you know, modest eight, nine percent SP level type of returns, you know, that kid's gonna have a lot later down in their life. So long-winded answer to to your question. Yeah, yeah. But it was hey, that was valuable, right? Like cause that kind of uh I think we think along the same way, right? It's pretty much the my my thoughts were exactly the same. Like I said, I, I didn't uh, like for those listening. I didn't mean it as an attack. No, I just meant that there's a, a different strategy that I believe in. Yep, and I think there's a place for everything. You just got to figure out where that place is for you. A hundred percent. I totally agree with that. And and it's okay to attack four hundred one k. There's no like if you really think about like if you think about the mutual fund industry as a whole, right? And where it came from, right? Like I said, it came from from the pensions being you know getting rid of. But if if you want to get an S&P 500 index, right? It's going to cost you nothing, right? The cost of like to, to invest in the S&P 500, you can either now, again, it's evolved and we have these things called ETFs, right? So they, they, they trade like stocks versus even funds. So you can get like SPY or VOO and you're paying like <clears throat> we call them basis points, but like think about it as a, as a fraction of a percentage, right? So you're going to pay, you know, three basis points. So like that's three, three tenths of 1%. In, in a cost, right? Because there's no cost to manage this thing. They take the, the S&P 500, they take the 500 largest companies in the United States and they put it in this thing and nobody actively manages it. Those are the best if you're gonna use these things because otherwise, if you actually look at mutual funds, you're paying you know, 50 basis points, so a half a percent or 1% or maybe sometimes crazily, you know, oddly even more than 1% of your fees to be actively managed. And if you look at the historical returns most funds underperform the S&P 500. So if you're going to underperform, like if, you, if you're just trying to get the S&P 500 anyway, just buy the S&P 500 and don't pay all these fees. So um, that, that's just like, there is a knock on that industry, right? There's There are fees that probably are not necessary to be paid by the individual. Yeah, exactly. And and again, there's been years and years and years of people uh, paying those fees without even understanding what they're paying for. Uh, what I don't like about it is really the lack of transparency. I mean, Bingo. now there's more transparency than there used to be, but sometimes, and that's with any industry, let's be honest, every industry has what I call a crook. Right. And I don't necessarily mean someone's out there like a vulture trying to steal from people. I don't necessarily, well, there's some of that too. But what I mean is there's always that hidden thing where it's not open and honest and, and it comes out over time. Right. Yeah. So I, I mean, I could 
I can think of like insurance is another good one. Yeah. Tons of hidden fees. And even today you still don't get good transparency. When you buy a home, I don't know how it works in Canada, but title insurance, that's another like, oh, uh, what a, I wouldn't say scam, but pretty good scam because like, let's say you buy a home and you get title insurance and they, they check for clean title. Right. So no, what, what that means for anyone listening who doesn't even understand what title insurance is, is it means that nobody has a lien on this property so that if you buy a property, no one can come to you in two years and say, hey, I had a loan to the prior owner and he never cleared it. So I had a lien against it. And so they take it away from you. Right. So that's what title insurance is designed to do. But if you buy a house and two years later, interest rates drop and you want to refinance that home in those two years, you're the been the owner. You had clean title when you bought it two years ago. They make you get new title insurance in the United States to recheck, right? And like, you're like, wait a second. What, what was the value of the title insurance check I did two years ago? Why, why do I have to pay again? But that's how the industry works, you know? So there's always, like, there's definitely things out there. See, I'm a fan of title insurance, to be honest. Okay. But not for the reason mm-hmm. that you would think. Okay. Like, look, this, this is the way I look at it. I mean, I'm a fan of title insurance because I think it's protecting you from a scam, a scam that should not exist. And here's what I mean. I'm going to get into that. Now, a prime example, with title insurance, there's a protection with identity theft if somebody takes your home. Okay. There's a little bit of a protection in that, right? Now, now, the way it works is that, prime example, if your home gets sold and your home gets sold and it gets sold. Uh, while you're on vacation, you come back. Mm-hmm. You have insurance on that that's going to cover that. The problem is, though, I don't want my money value. I don't want my mortgage paid off. I want my freaking home. Yep. But the person is if the person who bought it bought it clean and clear and bought it legitimately. It's not their fault that they got scanned, right? Like, so what ends up happening is the new buyers who moved in end up keeping your home. You get full value. So if you sold it, you would have got everything you would have sold, sometimes even then some. But if you had no plans to move, what the hell is that? But the point is without title insurance, yeah, you'd be in trouble trying to get that, you know, trying to figure out, you know, who's paying what and where you're getting the money from. So I, I take no issue with title insurance. I take issue with in that window of refinancing. Yes, yes, yes. That's what I mean by it. Like, why do I need to do it again? Yeah, and exactly. Once you paid it, you paid it. Yeah, but it's correct. not the way it is. Yeah, correct. <laughs> like, I, I think there's the thesis makes sense, right? Like a lot of times you get into a real estate deal, like obviously in personal homes, it's less common, but you can have situations where buildings or apartment complexes or things that like, there's weird liens that nobody knew about that this thing has to clear out and this has to get, and that makes a ton of sense. But like when even on that, like once you own it, you shouldn't have to pay for it again because you're getting a better rate on your loan. That That's where I have issue with. Yeah, that makes sense. And and look, another time that you get a lien on title that people don't realize is you renovate your home. The minute you got a permit and you have that construction company under contract, they got a lien on your home. Now, you hope they remember to remove it once they're paid, but sometimes that doesn't happen. Fair. It also depends on the contractor if they're actually good enough to uh, to do that. <laughs> like, well, yeah. Like I'm assuming, yeah, you know what? There's a lot of characters out there, but I'm assuming for the most part that most people are at a certain criteria. Fair. But uh, yeah. So anyway, so then you started off in the financial business, you moved over and now you got your own portfolio and you're helping other people, right? Yes. Um, I think I, I, I happen to, what I've come to realize is um, I, first of all, like educating people. Um, it just, you know, I think, you know, my wife is a teacher and I always say like, it's sad because it's like such an underpaid industry, right? Like teachers are generally yeah. not very well paid. Um, and I'm not saying that I would go teach per se in a school, but I did actually, I did two years in my son's high school. I gave a finance 
um, basic class to seniors. And by the second year, what ended up happening was is like juniors and sophomores even started like coming into the class. And like, like on one hand, I wanted to tell them like, hey, you're supposed to be somewhere else. And on the other hand, I like, I didn't want to kick them out because like, like, I feel like it's super valuable. Um, you know, so I think, I think one of the things that happened was in dealing with a lot of entrepreneurs, there were different levels, right? There are people who are like, hey, I'm sitting on a ton of cash and I really don't know what to do. Right. And I want to help them and I want to say, hey, like, come work with me. And I tell them, you know, apply and, and we'll see if, if it makes sense to work one on one. But then there's the masses. There's a lot of people that like just need fundamental education. And so I actually partnered with someone a, a couple of years, it was a couple of years ago, and we created a, a course called Future Fund. And what we did was we basically broke down the basics for people because some people they're going to get to a, a wealth place where they're going to need to need to know how to invest certain things. And other people are like, Hey, listen, I just want to live my lifestyle the way I have it. And I really don't know what I'm doing because there's all this emotion and, and, and upbringing around money, right? Like, again, I'm not a, a woo person, but th there's a lot of psychology around money. And there's a lot of great books out there. Like if, if people want to read really good books, like the psychology of money is a book that came out about two, two, three years ago amazing amazing book like you pick it up on amazon whatever it is it's soft cover it's, it's a great book because somewhere along there there's going to be a sentence in there that just like whack, smacks you in the face and you're like that's me that that's who i am right and and even if you're like well what's the bare minimum what should i do like ramit sethi has a book called i'll teach you to be rich and again it's not none of these are the holy grail but each one gives you like really good like frameworks that you'll see like does this fit for me and, and the book I tell everybody to always read, irrespective of anything, is called the you know um, the richest man in Babylon. Because I actually think oh, yeah. that book. I mean, that book is written like in the 1920s, but it actually has it, it's a storyline, right? And the idea there is really like it's teaching people about compounding and the fact that your money has to make money. That that's the core messaging, right? Your money has to has to be earning you money, otherwise you have a problem. And so that goes to the point you're making, right? Like sitting in the bank. Okay, now maybe you can get like four percent in the bank, but like if we were having this conversation two years ago, you'd get zero percent in the bank, right? So the money has to be working for you. So with Future Fund, first we were like, okay, how do we even get to a place where we can put money to work, right? And so like the, one of the core principles I teach people has nothing to do with investing, but it has everything to do with everything in life, and you could apply it to investing, and that's Parkinson's law. So Parkinson's law basically in a nutshell says, whatever time or space I give something, it's going to occupy that. So let's translate that into human speak and into normal people, right? Like if I give you, normally you tell me it takes me a month to do a project at work. And I'm like, okay, well you have two weeks. Odds are you're going to get it done in two weeks. Why? Because the time and space, the two weeks is what I gave you. If I say to you, okay, you can have a closet in your house to fill with junk, right? All your excess junk. And you're like, well, all I have is one board game. I assure you in over time, you are going to fill that closet with tons of your stuff, your junk, right? And so then you're like, oh, I need, I need a bigger house. Yeah, yeah. So you go and you buy a bigger house with more closets. And next thing you know, all the closets are full, right? So again, this is all Parkinson's law in, in different forms and shape. So the way you apply it to investing is people are like, I don't have money to invest. I'm living right at the line, right? Like I make money and I basically, all my expenses are the same thing. So I tell people, okay, listen, let's say you're making $5,000 after taxes, $5 million. It doesn't matter what that number is, right? $5,000 after taxes is what you have. And you're like, I spend like my, my rent, my, my, whatever, my mortgage, my property taxes, all the things are $5,000, my food, my kids, all the stuff. If I said to you, 
you're going to only get 4,500 after taxes now, from now on. I'm gonna steal $500 of yours and I'm gonna invest it for you. So I'm not really stealing, but I'm just gonna take it away from you and I'm gonna invest it. You'll figure out, Parkinson's law says, you're gonna figure out how to live off of 4,500. And people are just scared to do that. But the reality is, is if they do it themselves, right? They auto drop it out, like auto pull it out. Right, so they don't have to think about it and they don't have to you know, do anything, whether it's real estate, whether it's S&P 500, it doesn't matter. Whether it's just in the bank account, into another bank account, right? They're going to figure out how to live on 4,500. And so that's like Parkinson's law at its core in, in the investing space. And so understanding that that money, that $500 growing and making you money is going to be the, the game changer for you, right? So a lot of the things in, in, in Future Fund, like we kind of break it down in, into that. We give you spreadsheets and all this kind of stuff. So I, I think, you know, for me, I just love teaching in general. I love teaching investing, but I also, I love seeing when someone comes to me and they're like, holy cow, I've changed my mindset. I've changed my life. And like, I'm ready to do more, or I just, I like, I've, I don't need you. And which is totally cool. And like, Hey, I just want to tell you, thank you. You know, which is also like the entrepreneurial journey tends to be that way for most people too. Right? Like we're having this conversation because you like talking real estate, like talking entrepreneurs. I have my podcast inside the lines. Then I talk to entrepreneurs who sold businesses and different things, all the same thing. Right? Because I'm teaching, you're teaching, people are getting value. But at the same time, everyone's like, so to speak, enjoying it, you know? Part of my language, you're son of a bitch. <laughs> I just realized okay, something. Okay, go for it. I listened to your podcast. I just didn't realize mm. it was you. All right. <laughs> that is awesome, right? What a coincidence. Like sometimes <laughs> things just happen, yeah. right? That's well, awesome. I appreciate well, that. Great show, well, by the you. way. So yeah, I agree with everything you said. And I didn't have the name for it, uh, but it's the same concept. I, I tell people almost the exact same thing, just differently. Right? I ask them, say, uh, you're, you know, why don't you invest? Well, I'm living check to check. How can I invest? I have no money left. Okay, well, just deduct and uh, figure it out. Find a way to make more money. That's an option. Right. Or find a way to live on less. Oh, that's impossible. Okay, well, and I, and I go to them. I go, government takes what, 30% from your check? Yeah. What if the government told you today that they're increasing taxes and you're not going to pay 40%? Well, I'd have to pay it. I'd have no choice. But how do you figure out to pay the tax when you're living check to check, but you can't figure out how to pay yourself that 10%? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So it kind of opens people's eyes and then, you know, gets them thinking. Now, some people will take the advice. And other people, it's like talking to brick walls. And that's fine because that's not who you're speaking yeah, to. Yeah, it, it's it's sad and unfortunate, but it's exactly right, right? Like, it's, it's not who you're talking to. And at the same time, like, these are things that should be taught in school, right? Like, m my kids are all, like, you know, going through high school or going through college. And um, my daughter, my eldest daughter wants to be a dentist. So she's applying to dental school. She's taking these things. And so in college, one of the, the requirements she had to take was calculus. And I said to her, I said, that's the biggest waste of time. And she says, what? you're a math guy. How could you say that? I'm like, because nobody who is not like a like an engineer for NASA or like, you know, designing things like you don't use calculus in your regular day. And almost 90 plus percent of the people, no matter what your job is. You know, and like if you're listening and you use calculus in your job, you hit me a message, send me, I use calculus because it's so rare, right? Like it, it's not common. And like even in finance, even in investing, you don't, that's not the math we use. And, and so like, I'm like, I can't believe this. The amount of money that like we're paying for college education that doesn't even include fundamental life skills, 
you know, and so forget high school, like we're, we're talking a college degree that has zero application. It, it was so upsetting. I mean, granted, she needs the sciences. She needs all those things. And I get it. And like, there's something to be said about learning psychology and even history. And there's, there's worldliness to some of the stuff, but at the same time, like from a use case, like it's almost like home ec, you know, these are the things that people should be taught, you know, like they teach certain fundamental skills and they ignore others. So. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, I got a major beef with the education system, regardless of what side of the border you're on. And it's not necessarily education. I'm pro education. Yeah, it's, it's what they're, <laughs> it's the system and what yes. they're teaching. Yeah, yes, okay. exactly, exactly. Like I found that like prime example, we're going to use your, on the Canadian side, the teachers are paid a lot better. Okay. Not starting off, starting off, they're all crap, but we're, we're talking about after the tenor, mm -hmm. after the tenor, the teachers here are paid like 94. So it's not bad mm -hmm. here. Um, it's not great. I mean, I still think that's a capped income, especially today. Like, let, let's be honest. I, I did a, you know, I did a little uh, clip a, a month ago and, uh, you know, my statement was, if you make a hundred thousand dollars a year, you're broke. And I really believe that because once upon a time, that hundred thousand, like, Look, I'm 47 or I will be in about something like 11 days or some stupid number like that. When I grew up, 100,000 was huge. For sure. Homes were also 250,000. For sure. Today, they're 1.1, 1.3. Yeah, I mean, think th what was it was it last week, 2 weeks ago there was an article about UPS drivers making 170k in the United States, you know? And so like and I don't I it was really interesting. Like I saw the article and I was like, good for them. Like I read the article. I'm like, great. Like these guys have a rough job, go through all the wind, all the, all the different weather patterns, you know, depending on where you are, you know, yeah. like, and like some of the responses were like, holy cow, I can't believe they're making this much money. I'm like, well, if, if you want to make that and you want to drive a truck all day and you want to, you know, move boxes around and whatever, like get off your butt and go do that. But if you wanted to do something else, like understand, like that's okay. But the, to your point, right, $100,000 used to be like a lot of money. And if you're telling me like a UPS driver now can make 170, which is good for him or her, it, it just tells you what the value of salaries are, right? Like where, yeah. It, and people, you know, when, when inflation started rising and I use, use air quotes there to, to talk about that. And like, people had a hard time, like comprehending, like what is an 8% inflation rate? What is a 6% inflation rate? And I'm like, listen, forget the noise, forget the numbers. Like it doesn't matter. Here's how I'm going to break it down for you. Pre COVID you went in and milk was $2 a gallon. And now milk is 270 a gallon. Do you understand that that is approaching a 50% increase, right? It's like a 35 to 40% increase. So if your total grocery bill went from $1,000 to $1,400, do you understand that? And people are like, hell yeah, right? And you're like, okay, that's the inflationary effect. Granted, we've had eggs go bonkers and a lot of that is the bird flu and all this stuff. There's always an explanation, an excuse. If you actually go back to the earnings season um, in late 2022, like fourth quarter of earnings, and we start to listen to companies, um, I'm not going to pick on Procter and Gamble per se, but because they're they're just like one of the bigger companies that make things. But if you actually look at and and go into the earnings, so every company, anyone who's listening is like, I don't know what the hell you're talking about. Like a company, you know, public companies, mm -hmm. they announce what how, on a quarterly basis how they do, right? They they say how much money they've made and what all the stuff, and they give you detail. And they put out a press release, but then after the press release, they have a call and they kind of go over things and they talk about guidance and the future and stuff like that. In the call or in the press release, they talk about how they got to the numbers that they produced, meaning like what their revenue was and what their earnings were and how they got there. 
if you actually looked, what was really interesting was a lot of these companies were not necessarily, they were making more money, but not because their costs were rising, right? Their, their top line sales were growing, but their, their costs to get to that were not growing, which means that the a lot in the beginning, everybody was like, well, the, the manufacturing costs were going up, the transporting costs were going up, all these different things were going up. And it just got to a point where companies were like, we don't need to actually increase. It, it, if, if our costs are no longer going up, we could just still keep rising, raising the prices because that's that's the storyline in the news, right? And we can profit from that. And we being potentially shareholders, um, potentially you know investors, but the companies were benefiting from quote unquote, the inflation storyline. My, my wife laughs at me because I do some of the shopping and I know random numbers all the time, right? So I'll go and I'll be like, oh, you know, like if, if I were to like go on the prices right, I could probably tell you like what each thing kind of cost. And so one of the interesting things is like, I'll be like, oh, these are coming back down. She'll be like, what, what are you talking about? I'm like, you know, like uh, plastic spoons. They, they those spiked. Those those went for like nine dollars a case at Costco to thirteen dollars, and now they're down to like eleven. She's like, why do you know that? I'm like, I don't know. I go shopping and I just see it. But like as a percentage, those moves are wild, you know. And so it's very funny to see certain things kind of come back down, and other things I think will never come back down. But like your your milk's never going to be ninety nine cents a gallon again. Like I, I can assure you of that. And so that goes back to your whole point of hundred thousand dollars salary. How far does it go? What does it get you? And what is it worth today versus when when we were growing up as kids? One thousand percent. And that's what I mean. Like, look, when I first uh, when I first moved out on my own after when my dad was uh, my dad went to retirement home uh, with my mom. Right. Because my mom went first. She had Alzheimer's. But where I'm going with this is that. So at that point in time, I was uh, living with my parents and I decided to sell their home. So because I bought a new construction condo, so I figured I have that. What's the point of having an empty home? I got it. Before you go on with the story, I got to ask what, how many years ago was that? Oh, this was, uh, hold on this maybe 11 years ago. Okay. Right. So, um, so where I'm going with this is that I, I thought, okay, I didn't want to leave an empty home. And so anyways, and I thought it was just been better off putting it into some investment thing where okay. whatever. Anyways, point is I, mo- I moved into mm-hmm. the condo. Where I'm going with this is going to groceries, and I don't know how selling my home okay. got to that. But anyways, um, <laughs> I um, when I used to, uh, you know, that was the first time I had to buy my own groceries because at the time, I'm not gonna lie, my parents filled up the fridge, and okay. I pretty much emptied it with my stomach. And uh, <laughs> so now I'm responsible for my own groceries. And I remember I used to go and 80, 90 bucks, I would overbuy. Like that would be way too much food, way too much of anything. I'd have stuff left over. Now, for you know, fast forward, I move into, uh, I, I, I move out. Before COVID, I moved out to uh, just further west mm-hmm. into a house now. And what ended up happening is that I looked at groceries, that same $90 became, we'll say 130 now last week. Because I'm going on a month long trip, I'm trying not to stock. So what ended up happening is that I got half the amount. It was the same friggin' 130 yep. and I got half. Exactly. Yeah. And and it, it, that's why I say like the, the thousand to fourteen hundred. Like it's really like I, I'm I'm looking at like on a monthly or weekly, depending on how big of a family. Like I have four kids, right? So like we're, we're buying way more stuff than you know someone with no kids or one kid or whatever it is. And um right. but exactly. that's exactly right. I mean like 90 to 130 like people take for take for granted, but you're talking that's 50%. Like I know like People who don't like sit around doing math all the time, they're like, oh, whatever, it's a few dollars, but like it's meaningful. And and I tell people, like, 
it's very simple. Like if, if you're like struggling to like, I don't understand, right? Like if you, if you translate percentages, like if you go into one store and they sell something for a dollar and the other store sells it for dollar 30, you're like, whatever, it's 30 cents. But if you magnify that on everything, you have to assume that if one store is a dollar and the other is a dollar 30 for one thing, they're probably going to have that gap. You know, like ones, ones you're going to like the local convenience store at your gas station, right? And the other one is you're going to like whatever your your grocery chain or Target or something, you know, in your neighborhood. And you're like, well, it's just convenient. Yes. But if you actually start to accumulate a lot of purchases, it's literally going to go from like on $1,000 a month to $1,300 a month. And now it's meaningful. Now you can actually see the difference, right? Like because 90 to 130 it's a big number, like it's a big percentage change, but like you've paid attention to it, but the average person would be like, ah, whatever, like probably bought a few more things or whatever it is. But like, if you consistently do that, just think about the impact for sure. Right. Which goes back to what we said, the, the cash doesn't go as very, as far as it used to. For sure. And all of a sudden to do the same damn, if you were living paycheck to paycheck before inflation, yeah, let me know how you're doing right now. I'm willing to bet it's not and much it's better. Like what you said, right? There's two levers, make more money, reduce your costs. Those are the two levers. So, you know, educating yourself, not just about this stuff, but like with skills, right? Taking skills to make more money, that's huge. You know, like the, the opportunities today are infinite, especially relative to five, 10, 15, 20 years ago. The ability that you can learn a skill, translate it into money, you know? And, and I think it's, it's really important for people to at least understand that, to uh, apply it to their lives. Yeah, well, you're right. The opportunities today are much, much greater. Look, look what we're doing today. If we wanted to do, to do this 20 years ago or 30 years ago before the internet, I'd have to fly to you. Yep. You'd have to fly to me because we can only do it in person. Today, you know, look, I was going to record at home. I just, you know, I, I had somewhere to be and I thought timeline was too close. I'm closer to my office is closer to where I'm going than my home. I'm able to just pick up my computer, pick up my camera, put my mic down and do this somewhere else. Totally. Didn't do that before, right? So the opportunities are endless out there. Now, what people have to decide that they want to learn, they want to grow. Now, we talked about investing in 401ks. We talked about investing in RSPs or, or Roth IRAs or any of that. We talked about investing in real estate. Now, reality is that should all be secondary and third. The first investment you should make is in yourself, whether it's learning something that will increase your potential, whether it's uh, some other growth that can uh, just increase you know, like even, even if you take a course that gives you opportunity moving within the company you're working in, that's still a growth. It's learning a new skill. That's still another opportunity. Learning where to invest your money, that's still a skill, right? Like investing in yourself, doing personal development on yourself will always outgrow any other kind of investment you do. Because the more you know, the more you can tenfold what you were going to do. So that's the first investment. That's what people should do first, then invest in everything else. The most important thing though about that is when you invest in yourself to that, do that is then actually you have to take action, right? Because there are a lot of people out well, there. That yeah, was a, well, my assumption. It, it, if you actually look at the statistics, right? Like let take like the course industry. Um, I'd say you have an under 25% completion rate for courses. People buy courses. It's almost like the dopamine hit that they get for buying the course they they assume that okay now osmosis i'm gonna i'm gonna obtain the information and then once you actually complete the course now you actually have to take action to implement what you've learned so th there's like it it it's i i 100 yeah. support investing in yourself and investing in education and, and using it 
the the key though is, is like after you do that you actually have to use it and then actually take the steps which a lot of people just shockingly don't do and you know i'm sure most most people listening to this they're not in that camp because like otherwise why would they be listening to like a podcast but again it's get the information and then take action and that's why like when i recommend a book i tell people like do something right away like take take that small action set up the auto account to you know to vanguard or whatever it is just do something that moves you slightly in the direction of where you want where you're trying to go yeah and that's the thing here right like it's not necessarily you have to take massive steps small increments will get you there over time yeah. through compounding right like if you even are even one percent better today than you were yesterday that's a growth and if you get one percent every single day that's 365 percent a year because that's 365 it's days. even more than that right because you've compounded it correct exactly so and that and that's the thing right you just got to take the steps it's it's about the action is more important than what to learn i mean look let's let's be honest if you want to see the one one like let's go with education mm -hmm. that's what i'm trying to get at you you want to you know spend money and do nothing go get an mba and uh, and that'll uh, just be a way for you to throw out money and i'm not for not for everybody but for for the majority of people and this has been my experience of what i've watched is they're not happy with what they're doing so instead of learning how to do what they're doing better or learning how to do something new they just go out there and get an mba because then they're going to feel entitled once they have it and that's been my experience of what i've seen that's not for everybody there are people out there that actually make use of it but it goes like you said 25 percent don't even finish a course right with whatever they're taking and I think that applies to the podcast. You know how many people listen to podcasts? They turn it off and say, oh, that was educational. They go out and do what they do and they come back in. They don't remember what they listened to. Fair. And, and again, so yeah, going back to your point, it's it's about taking, not just learning, but using what you learn versus just taking it and allowing yourself to, here, this is where I'm going at. I okay. figured out the one-liner. Don't use education as an excuse to fool yourself, to convince yourself that you've done something. Because without the action steps, you're just as useful as you were before you learned. Yeah, no, you, you have to you have to apply the education, right? Like you have to, to learn it and then apply it for sure. 100% love that. So now not everybody is going to be your uh, clientele, right? Like there's all kinds of people that are going to be interested in all kinds of things out there. But uh, I believe in what I call niche marketing. I believe there's certain clientele, certain avatar of who we're trying to serve. And is that avatar is different for everybody. So what would your avatar be? Who that clientele that you're after, what would they look like? Yeah. So I'd say like someone who wants to work with me, um, is someone who is, is an entrepreneur and I mean, you could be, have a job, but you know, you, you're, you're doing enough that you have success in both your job or your business. And you're like, Hey, I don't really know what to do with this money and I want it to grow. And I, the biggest thing that I found is they may know that they want it to grow, but they lack access to opportunities and they want someone to actually vet it. Right. Cause like a lot of people, once they start seeing success, people come out of the woodwork, right? Like, Oh, you want to invest in my company? You want this, you want that. Right. And how do you know if it's a good opportunity or not? So, to your point that you made earlier, right? The financial industry has a lot of incentives that you don't see. So my whole thing is like, I don't care how you grow your money. If you like method A, i.e. stocks, or you like method B, real estate, or you like, I will help you and I will vet things for you and I will give you my independent analysis because at the end of the day, I'm not gonna be paid 
whether you invest in this, 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 or this, like I'm not incentivized, right? Like you're, you want to work with me? There's, there's a fixed amount that you pay me. And then my job is to be in your back pocket so that you could pull me out and say, okay, what do you think? What do you think? What do you think? And so working one-on-one with me like that, you can head over to solutionadvisory.com and, you know, hop on a call and we can talk. But if you're like, hey, I'm in the beginning of my journey and I really don't even like have those groundwork of things, you can head over to futurefundme.com and and hopefully that that kind of will give you a beginning of a framework to, to go from there. Fantastic. In light of time, I'm going to get down to the last two questions okay. and then I'm going to get into what I call the lightning round, which is just a few uh, fun questions. All right. Let's go. For it. All right. Okay. Second last question. How do you know you've had a successful day? Hmm. That's a tough one. I'll tell you why it's tough because... Um, a lot of people take their to-do list and different things like that and and that that sometimes their their gauge i think for me having a successful day is when i go back and i think about the day um there's always going to be things that i probably didn't get to or that i wanted to accomplish so i think the first thing to do is go through from a gratitude perspective what i appreciate over the day like you know, I had my kids a couple of years ago, like create gratitude journals. I gave them all for like the holidays. I gave them each a gratitude journal. And I said, if you fill this out for a year, if then I will give you or six months, or whatever it was, like, I'll give you another gift type of thing. It won't be another journal, but it will be something else. And, um, and you know, my, my youngest actually really took to it the most. And then, and my, my, my second oldest also, the two of them did it. Um, it was a really interesting experiment because I was doing it with them. And when you can appreciate what you had good that day, and it can always be the same thing, but ideally you want to mix it up. That makes for a good day because there's always going to be things you wish you did differently. There's always going to be things you wish you could gotten to and you didn't do. And so a successful day isn't like when you go to bed and you're like, oh, I accomplished everything. That's amazing. Yeah. But that's not going to happen every day. And when it doesn't happen, you don't want that to be the definition of not a successful day. Right? So I think if you can end your day, and have the gratitude for the things you did accomplish and the the things that went well, I, I think you can have a successful day. Love that. All right. Last but not least, and you kind of answered it before, but anyone looking uh, to find you, where would they go? Okay. So I gave uh, two of the sites, right? Um, the other thing is you can head over to my podcast uh, and listen to Inside Lines Den. Um, that's either Apple, Spotify, whatever, or even the website insidelinesdenpodcast.com. And then I'd say lastly, on any of the social media platforms, um, REA, the businessman on Instagram, REA shine by on Twitter and Instagram uh, and uh, Facebook and, and uh, LinkedIn. Fantastic. All right, let's get into the lightning round. Just a few it. questions. That's a lot of fun. Uh, what is your favorite food and why? Mm, a very good question. Um, I would go with, um, it's moved around the last few years because I've changed how I eat and how I do different things. So I would say I'm going to stick with like a basic. I'm going to go with London broil. Um, I, I grill it and, um, my wife gave me this recipe of like a marinade that I like have it sit for a little bit and then I grill it. My, my kids, half of them like it the way I do, which is more on the, you know, the, the medium to medium rare on, on the pinker side and half my kids like it on more medium well. So like I tend to like have flames on one side a little bit higher or a thicker piece on one side so that I know I can get it a more pinkier and, and they can get it a little more well done. So I'd go with that. One them royal. All right. You're, you're talking my language. I'm on my way. I'm coming over. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Next question. Uh, favorite vacation spot and why? So, um, my wife and I, thankfully we, we try and go once a year, just the two of us, um, somewhere. So 
this past year, we actually did, um, we were up out in Canada. So uh, we were in the Canadian Rockies. So we went to Banff National, oh, Banff nice. National Park. Um, and that was gorgeous. So I will caveat, I'm not going to say that as my favorite, because if you're not someone who likes the outdoors and hiking and stuff like that, it's it's an, a gorgeous, gorgeous place. But that may not be your thing. Like, So if you're looking for like R&R, &R, um, I would say um, our favorite place we went to was Mycoba in Mexico. Um, we stayed at a, a really nice place there and they have a golf course, which I like, but they also have beach, they have pools. So it really depends on like the type of, if you're an outdoor active person, you know, Banff was gorgeous, uh, Colorado, we've gone to Vail. Like, so it really depends what you like to do. I happen to like to do both, meaning like I have no problem sitting at the beach and doing nothing or at the pool and doing nothing. Or if you're like, Hey, let's go hiking every day. I'll do that too. So this past year was a, it was an active hiking. We did like, you know, anywhere from like six to 12 miles every day. So really depended on, on, uh, you know, on me at that moment in time. Got it. All right. Favorite podcast and or book. Okay. So I'm going to stay away from the podcast one because that shifts a lot. That that really changes a lot of the times. Um, so with with books, I would say I'm like looking over to my bookshelves here. Um, I have a number. Like I, I, I listed three books already for people who like from an investing standpoint. Um, Atomic Habits Love that is one. probably one of my, my favorite books for people who because like no matter what you want to do like just understanding almost like you're one percent better every day <clears throat> just understanding like the habits that they compound um that's one of my favorite books another one of my favorite books that i have all all my kids have read except for my youngest is uh, how to win friends and influence people is yeah just amazing and again it's an older book but it, it's just un unbelievably great and then if you're a business owner and you're trying to figure out like some of just key things about the fundamentals about how you can grow your business is going to be um it's called built to sell and um it's a story uh, okay so it's like written like a storyline right like it's, it's 150 maybe 200 pages you could sit down and read it in, in a second it's on amazon like 10 12 bucks i don't even know what it is anymore maybe inflation has brought it up but <laughs> um it's just a great book that basically shows you how to take you how to, how to make the business go without per se you being the business. Got it. Awesome. All right. Last but not least, if you were given unlimited amount of money, but you had 48 hours to spend it, what you spend, you get to keep what you don't spend gets taken away. What would you do? When uh, caveat question uh, is spending investing or is spending only spending? No, no, it can be anything you want to do it. It's just, it's got to leave your bank account and go somewhere. Okay. So I obviously would invest a lot of it. Um, I'm not much of a things person. Um, thankfully I have a very nice house and I, and I really appreciate my house. Um, I probably would, um, I would invest obviously in a lot of different real estate things. I would diversify across different assets. I would go out and, and make sure that I could invest in a lot of multifamily homes. Um, I am in self-storage as well. I'd probably look at some commercial uh, triple net lease stuff, which um, I'm in, but the, it's a much less kind of thing um, in the sense like I, I'm, I'm negative biased on, re, on, on retail today. So like that's why I'm not the biggest fan of like some of those deals. Um, I, and I get some exposure to warehousing because I think, again, logistics and third party fulfillments is, is a big thing. Um, I would personally, I would give away some to charity. Just that's what I would do. Um, and then I would figure out like what something I, I have a very hard time thinking about like things I like in the sense of like wasteful spending, but I probably would spend a good 5% of the money on let's call it wasteful spending because that will, um, satisfy your dopamine. 
like you know just like a, a small fraction just to kind of get something or whatever it is i don't i don't like it. i'm struggling with you right now to like give you some i don't know you know what i'd buy because it would be unlimited money i'd buy season tickets to the san francisco 49ers even though i live in new jersey i'm a huge san francisco 49er football fan and that way i could just that would be a, a massive waste of money in my in my mind i love i love but you know what like i'd have season tickets so that would be it Awesome, awesome, awesome! And if you're gonna do that and waste a little bit more, and uh, get me season tickets, and I'll join All you. All right. The 49ers are one of my favorites. <laughs> That's awesome. Thanks so much for being on the show. This has been phenomenal. I appreciate it. It was my pleasure. Awesome. Let's yeah, definitely keep in touch. Yeah, definitely. So it sounds like you're going away though, so you should totally enjoy. Oh yeah, I'm gonna be. Uh, it's business, like a mixture of business and pleasure. I'm going to be, uh, first week I'm going to Edmonton. That has to do with my mortgage business. Mm-hmm. Then I'm going to Florida. Florida is real estate uh, based. And as well as uh, I'm going to go see, see some people that I know there and, uh, you know, and uh, network with a few what, people. Um, what part of Florida are you going to? I'm going to land in Fort Lauderdale. I'm uh, going to be staying in Naples, mm-hmm. but I'm going to be traveling in between Florida to different spots. Uh uh, you know, between, uh, Fort Lauderdale, Myers, uh, not Myers. I mean, Fort Lauderdale, Miami, uh, I'll probably hit Fort Myers and, uh, I'm going to spend some time in Naples as well. So, so, I mean, obviously Naples is very wealthy. Are, are you going for investors or you, do you have deals down there? I'm, I have to go do a few, uh, you know, I have to go do uh, like, it is a business trip, mm-hmm. but I extended it. Like the business trip, I probably could have got done in four days. Gotcha. And I'm going to pretty much spend half of September there. Cause I thought nice. I might as well look like what it was is to do the four days with uh, when you include a hotel, car, whatever, it was something like 1100 bucks and it cost me 1900 bucks to stay half the month. So I thought I might as well. Yeah. So it's kind of a mix and match. I mean, some business, some personal, some personal. Gotcha. I got that there. And then I come back and I uh, fly to Ottawa for lunch and I fly back the same day. And um, yeah, that one. uh, Yeah. (laughs) So it's, so it's going to be a fun September. Awesome. If you like what you saw and you want to see some more, subscribe to the link below. Thanks for tuning in to the John Papaloni show.